All right, whatever kid suggested that song, thank you. <laughs> I love that song, so thank you for getting that going. Oh. It's a joy to be here with you this morning. Good morning. I missed my normal intro. You were like, oh, the sermon's starting? Yeah, should give mo- good morning. should start there. We are, I, I have tons of thoughts in my head this, head this morning. Uh, for one, basking off of what, uh, what working with Dane and Dawn uh, last week and what was presented there, and just a lot of the idea of looking into the future uh, as we focus in on what is coming. You may be familiar with the story. There was a minister. He was a minister of Central Christian Church in Wichita, Kansas. His name was Joe Wright. He was asked to lead the prayer at the Kansas State House of Representatives there, there in Topeka, Kansas. This was in January 23rd, 1996. Now, Wright borrowed a prayer from another uh, pastor and uh, borrowed the prayer, made it a little bit his own. But this prayer caused some controversy. Um, you may have heard about it on uh, Paul Harvey talked about uh, even the controversy and it, in fact became one of the most requested things that Paul Harvey ever did. Uh, request from people to have the script of this prayer. Here's the prayer. Mind you, this is at the House of Representatives for, uh, t- for Kansas. It says, Heavenly Father, we come before you today to ask your forgiveness and to seek your direction and guidance. We know your word says, woe to those who call evil good, but that's exactly what we have done. We have lost our spiritual equilibrium and inverted our values. We confess that. We have ridiculed the absolute truth of your word and called it pluralism. We have worshipped other gods and called it multiculturalism. We have endorsed perversion and called it an alternative lifestyle. We have exploited the poor and called it the lottery. We have neglected the needy and called it self-preservation. We have rewarded laziness and called it welfare. We have killed our unborn and called it a choice. We have shot abortionists and called it justifiable. We have neglected to discipline our children and called it building self-esteem. We have abused power and called it political savvy. We have coveted our neighbor's possessions and called it ambition. We have polluted the airways with profanity and called it freedom of expression. We have ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. Search us, O God, know our hearts today. Try us and see if there be some wicked way in us. Cleanse us from every sin and set us free. Wow. Um, needless to say, a few people left during that prayer of uh, whenever he gave it. It was given, uh, I believe, in Colorado um, a few months later in the same response. And that's when Paul Harvey got a hold of it. Kind of sounds like we could echo the words of that prayer today. I mean, that was 1996. But not tons have changed, has it? We could probably add a few new things. Now, I don't mean for this to be a political statement of any sort. I wanted to use this as, as an understanding of what evaluation and assessment truly does. See, when Joe Wright looked at the state of our union, this is what he saw. When he compared and contrasted it to the Word of God, he saw that we were lacking that we were calling evil good. And I don't disagree. Many of us have said the same thing. He just had the guts to go before the group. 
He had the opportunity to do that. He had an evaluation. And I think we need to continue honest evaluations. Not one based upon party lines, not one based upon what the Republicans or Democrats or whoever is in the president's seat at the moment, not anything based upon what we might think or what we might feel. We need to have some honest evaluations of what the Word of God says and do we reflect this. Is that what we're looking like? Or are we drifting further and further away? Maybe unintentionally, maybe it's not our plan, but the thing is, the further that we go down a route of brokenness, the more normal it will seem. And that's whenever we get in problems. See, it's not just the state of our union that needs addressed. It's the state of our congregation. It's the state of Christianity. It's the state of us individually. We need to have some honest evaluations of taking stock for who we are, what we're doing, what we currently have, and even where we're going. This morning, we are starting a series that is really a continuation of what Dane and Don uh, presented last week, this focusing 2020, besides just being a little cute thing on vision, you know, having fun with that, it is really a statement and testimony of what we're striving to do this year. Because the thing is, if you noticed in their plan, we didn't have like, here's all the things that we're going to do this year. Because a lot of that is saying, here's what we're going to do this year. We are going to try to focus in on what God desires for us in the next five, ten years. What is it that God is leading Western Heights as a congregation to? What is he leading us away from, if needs be? What is it that is going to define us, obviously the blood of Christ, and obviously plenty of things about what it means in Scripture, but we also know that we can't do everything, and so what are the things that God is leading us into for the next five, ten years? So this year, we're going to be focusing in on different aspects of his word, different aspects of worship, different aspects of service to try to understand here is what God is calling us to here in 2020 in the foreseeable future as a congregation at Western Heights. Now, if we are on this congregational journey, we ask you to join, but we also ask you to join it personally. Because we don't want you to make a congregational commitment without making a personal commitment, recognizing that if your faith isn't intact, if you aren't following Christ yourself, then it's not going to help the congregation as a whole. And so we want you to make that call individually to follow God wherever he might be leading you in the next few years, next five, ten years, whatever that looks like in the moment and in the future, and let that also be the catalyst for conversation for us as a congregation. But to start off, we have to get real honest with ourselves. As Joe Wright ended his prayer with this psalm from one, uh, Psalm 139, this is where we're going to begin. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. That is one scary prayer to pray. I don't know if you've ever truly prayed this prayer, but I'm going to be honest, whenever I do, God always finds something in me that offends him. That's why I, I, pretty much one of my New Year's resolutions was, I need to quit praying this prayer. I'm tired of offending God. Okay, that didn't work very well, but the thing is, it's scary because there are things that I know that I do that offend God. We call them sin. But what's scary to me is there are things that I don't know that I'm doing that offend God. And whenever I say, search me, O God, find the things that offend you, 
he is more than happy to respond and say, hey, you know what? Here it is. Now, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to fix it or are you going to try to hide it like all the other sins in your life, Mitch? What are you going to do with this? It's a scary prayer to pray, but it's one that is absolutely necessary. I said it just a little bit ago, but the thing is, what I know about my own life and what I know about groups of people is that the further that we walk in a life of brokenness, the more normal it seems and the less likely we are to pray this prayer. The less likely we become to actually search for the Lord's word. And so we need to be very vigilant, recognizing that what may feel normal to us is not always what God desires in us because we get used to the brokenness. That leads me to a story. main focus that we're going to have this morning is a little uh, on the, uh, the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is an interesting fellow. He kind of found himself in a situation uh, where the people had accepted brokenness and uh, it was normal for them. If you know the story of Nehemiah at all, Nehemiah was a uh, servant uh, to the king of the time, but this is not the king of Jerusalem. It's not the king of Israel. It is King Artaxerxes. They are in, um, the Israelites are in captivity. They are uh, dispersed among the kingdom, and Jerusalem, back home, the capital of Israel, is in ruins. Not just physically, although that's what's pointed out at first, but also spiritually. The walls are in a broken state. And Nehemiah gets word of the, of the walls and the problems at his, the center of his people, Jerusalem. And he can't stand idly by. Because he hasn't accepted this as normal as so many others have. And so he has to do something. And so Nehemiah 1 verse 4 says this. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to God, the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commandments, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people, Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. This sounds like a normal prayer for a lot of us, doesn't it? But here's where we sometimes in our public prayers don't take it. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, the decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. He goes on to pray. He goes on to ask God, remember, though, what you've said. Remember your promise, Lord, that you have promised to return your people when they return to you. And so he's asking, Lord, hey, make, true, make good on your promise because I'm about to make some plans. Some plans that I believe are in line with your promise, not in line with the broken state that we have, because we need to address this brokenness. And so he goes to King Artaxerxes, gets the blessing from the king to go back to Jerusalem and, bear, uh, and build the walls. More than that, King Artaxerxes gives him the letters to be able to uh, solicit the materials needed for building these walls. That's a bold plan. But he saw it clearly, and Nehemiah went for it. But I want you to notice... When he comes to Jerusalem, what happens? Chapter 2, verse 11. So I arrived in Jerusalem three days later. I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. 
I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. We took no pack animals with us except the donkey I was riding. After dark, I went out through the valley gate, past the jackal's well, and over to the dung gate. I don't know who described and named these different walls and gates, but they need Jesus quickly. I went by the dung gate to inspect the broken walls and burned gates. Then I went to the fountain gate, okay, they're getting better, and to the king's pool, but my donkey couldn't get through all the rubble. Let that soak in for a second. That's the ruins that they are living in. His own donkey couldn't get through all the ruins. So though it was still dark, I went up to the kindred valley instead, inspecting the wall before I turned back and entered again at the valley gate. So Nehemiah shows up in Jerusalem. He doesn't let the, the people of Jerusalem know his plans. He slips out with just a few people to go take stock of the walls, to evaluate. See, Nehemiah has already heard the condition of, of the walls, but he doesn't let the hearing of the condition be the only in, uh, information and input that he gets. He goes and walks through the rubble himself. He walks through the ruins. He goes to evaluate it himself so that he can properly address the situation. This is actually really important for us. Because a lot of times this is a step that we're not willing to take. We want change. We want things to be different in our lives or in our congregation or in our country. But we're not willing to walk through the ruins of our lives in order to assess what really does need changed. Preacher of yesteryear, he died not all that long ago. And a guy by the name of Ray Stedman said this. You will never build the walls of your life until you have first become greatly concerned about the ruins. I just want to repeat that one, because that's huge. You will never build the walls of your life until you have first become greatly concerned about the ruins. Have you ever taken a good look at the ruins of your own life? Have you ever stopped long enough to assess what could be under God and compared them to what you are? Have you looked at the possibilities that God gave you in your life and then seen how far you have deviated from that potential. Have you? I mean, personally, have you taken stock? Have you been willing to walk through the ruins of your life and assess it going, you know what, wow. So much potential that God called me into. So many things that God has set at my doorstep. So many places that God said, hey, Mitch, I want you to be a light here. And then I look at my life, and I'm wondering what in the world happened. I'm wondering how did I stray so far from the beauty of that potential. And then I look around at the ruins, and I realize the brokenness is my own fault. It's my own doing. These are choices that I've made along the path, maybe little choices, but also big choices that help me deviate from the path that God has called me. Not only is this individually happening, but this happens on a congregational level as well. We do the same kind of thing, and so we have to start taking stock. Are we truly living up to God's potential, or are we just getting by individually, congregationally? As a congregation, we need to make these kind of evaluations. Are we really doing what we need to be doing? 
Or are we just getting by? Are there ministries that we aren't doing that we should be doing? Are there ministries that we are doing that aren't effective anymore and the only reason we're still doing them is because someone can't give it up? Not necessarily honoring God, but we sure are honoring tradition. Here's the thing I ran across uh, the other day in, in one of my books that I was reading, and I loved it. It says this, even the greatest traditions are meaningless unless they effectively communicate God's truth to those that assemble. All that's saying is if a tradition doesn't continue to communicate God's word, God's truth to the gathered assembly now, then why are we doing it? We need to be careful about misrepresenting God by simply following through with what we have always done. The thing is, we should be willing to look at absolutely everything that we are doing now. Congregationally, individually, everything should go through the filter, should go through the evaluation process. Is, is this truly what we need to be doing? Is this what God has called us to in this moment for this time? Or are we doing this for our own reasons? Truth be told, whenever I looked at, look at the activity of this congregation overall, so here's a little bit of my evaluation of Western Heights Church Christ. You ready? We do a lot of things. Have you ever noticed? There's a lot in our bulletin going on. In fact, uh, it was, a few of us were talking about this. It was several years ago we had a ministry fair, and there was a whole bunch of ministries that all needed help. And we have a lot of things going on, and the main thing that I hear from people is we need more people involved. We need more things going on or we have all these things going on, we need to be able to do these. We have a lot of things. I'm going to give you a word picture then, um, a, a visual image of my assessment of all the things that we do. We're kind of like an octopus on roller skates. Let that sink in for a second. Whole bunch of movement, but not necessarily going anywhere. If I'm going to be honest, we do a lot of even good things at Western Heights. But our follow-through or our follow-up in these things, I don't know if I'd call it terrible, but it ain't good. There's a lot of things that we do, and we, I don't know the reason. I can't fully put my finger on why is it that our follow-up isn't so good. Is it that we have these grand visions and then we move on to the next vision? Or is it that we're so tired by the time the event is done that we don't have the wherewithal to be able to follow up and truly make disciples? We almost pat ourselves on the back saying, hey, great job, good event, and then let's look at the next one. I don't know exactly how to fix it. I got a few ideas. But maybe, maybe one of the first steps that we need to look at, are we doing too much? One of the greatest pictures that, I, that Dane and Dawn mentioned last week on this journey, if we're talking about hiking, you can't take everything with you. You have to limit what you take. They were joking around before in their preface saying, you know, at some point, uh, Dane's like, I'll, I'll bring out my hair dryer. Yeah, Dane uses a hair dryer. It's fine. Don't judge him. <laughs> but the, the point is to joke around saying, where are you going to plug that in on a camping trip? You don't need to bring the excess baggage. Maybe we need to have an evaluation of saying, what are the things that are holding us back? Good things that are holding us back from the great things that God desires. There's a whole bunch that we need to consider in this, but it's, 
along with it, let's look at how Scripture talks about this. Hebrews 12.1. Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. Pretty much every one of us is totally fine with this on a personal level. level. We look at the baggage of our own lives and be like, man, why am I carrying this around? I can move a whole lot quicker in God's direction if I didn't, wasn't held back by my sin. This is the gospel message. But I'm going to be honest, as soon as you apply this to a congregation, people go, oh, hold on. Hold on. That's not the way we've done it around here. You know, the way we've always done it is this. Those are words that we have to be very careful of. Those are pharisaical words, not Christ words. What is it that weighs us down from doing what we need to be doing this year? Is it our sin? Probably. Is it our pride? Almost oh, definitely. Or maybe it's simply that we're doing so many good things that we're missing out on the truly great things for the kingdom of God. Maybe, maybe our energy is so stretched thin that we need to bring our focus back to what it's all about. Paul says this so well in Philippians 3, 10 through 14. He says, I want to know Christ. I'll strip, off everything, uh, strip everything else away. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess the perfection of which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, has called us. I think Paul has some laser light focus going on here. I mean, he is clearly focused on what his goal, what his plan is, what he's looking forward to. Now, there's levels in, like, he, he still is addressing the past in positives. It's not just forgetting the past completely. Those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. I think Paul would agree. It's not that that he's going against. He's saying, don't let that hold you back. Don't let the past, whether it's your own sinful past or whether it's the past that is holding you back from doing what God wants you to do, don't let that hold you back. Focus in on Christ and where he is leading. Have that laser-like focus because all I want, I want to know Christ. I want to experience what he experienced. I want to be with him forever, now and forever. So what's the next right step? What does that look like? Maybe we need to understand that the next right step always looks like faithfulness. Nehemiah, back to his story. Nehemiah shows up in Jerusalem to fix, rebuild the walls, to address the brokenness of the walls. But if you've read the book, you recognize that that's only half the story of the book. Only half of the story is about the building of the walls. The rest of the story is about the building of Israelites' faith back in God. 
In other words, Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem because of their brokenness, uses the brokenness of the wall to get them to understand, here's the next right thing to do. And then when they build that wall, uses that as a catalyst to talk about their own brokenness in their own lives. The rest of the book is about Ezra sharing with them the word of God and them committing, recommitting their lives to God. Because that is what we're looking for. Every ministry, everything that this church does or everything that you do individually, there are things that you do that may not make full sense, but you see the picture. But if all we ever do is do the first step and don't continue on, I believe we're doing a disservice. We're just building walls around a city. Nehemiah didn't come just to build walls around a city. He came so that people could build walls in their heart, good walls, walls for God. We need to take those steps. And then the next right step. The next step in the faithfulness. Maybe we need an honest evaluation of where we are, where we're going, what's at our disposal. The thing is, we have these conversations, don't we? We have them at lunches. Some used to call it, you know, that we'd roast the preacher for lunch. Um, some of you may do that. I, I'm, I'm proudful enough that I'm pretty sure I taste good. So enjoy. I got no problem with that. Some of us do it, uh, you know, later on. We'll get, grab a group and we'll have our own evaluation. I want to tell you that that's well and good. But it's also missing something. Because our evaluation needs to be together. Our evaluation needs to be in a community of believers so that we can rightly evaluate and not, well, put it this way, I can evaluate some things that some people in my life will be able to point out the sin that I have in that evaluation. Saying, hey, whoa, Mitch, you're only one in that because your pride got hurt over here. Oh, you're right. Small groups, Many of the small groups will be discussing this a little bit further tonight. I welcome you, if you're at a place in your, in your small group tonight, to take a pause and discuss more. Great. Do it. But don't let it just stop there. Don't let it become a complaining and gripe fest because that's not going to help anybody. Let it come to a productive place where we can say, yes, here's what we need to be looking at for 2020 and beyond. But these things also are a question of our own lives. See, it's not just about a congregational evaluation, it's an evaluation of us personally. That's why I started with that at the beginning. That every one of us, if we have not committed to follow Christ ourselves, then I'm going to just be honest, your voice as, a, as part of this congregation needs to be squelched. We don't need to listen to those who are not listening to Christ. And so we need to be careful. So I'm going to ask you where you're at, individually. Where are you at today? Are you at the place that you feel, you know, I'm good. I'm comfortable here. But if you were taking an honest evaluation of yourself, you'd say, you know what, I'm nowhere where God desired for me. If that's the case, then get back on the path of what God desires for you. Don't let that be an excuse of saying, well, you know, God knows there's a discrepancy. Yes, God knows there's a discrepancy, but he asked you to mind that gap. He asked you to come to his plan for your life. 
So for some of you, that means that you need to take on Christ as your Lord and Savior. For some of you, that means that you need to commit your life to him for the first time, saying, I am yours, wholly, completely. Giving your life to him through the waters of baptism, coming up with your sins taken care of and a new life given. But for some of you, it's a recommitment as it was in Nehemiah's day. That you've gotten so used to the ruins of your life that you just think that it's normal. And you need to recognize you've been called for something so much more than the ruins of your life. And if you need prayers to help seek God's will and guidance for the future, we'd love to pray with you. If you need to commit your life to him, we would love to be here and witness and be a part of that. I want to let you know the elders, ministers, they surround this auditorium. We don't do this just, you know, for the kicks of it. We do it so that you have a person and you know you have a person to come and talk to. But I'll be honest as well. If you don't want to talk to any one of the elders and ministers, we're okay with that. Talk to someone else. Here's the thing. Don't stay where you're at. Because none of us is where we should be. So if you need anything this morning, would you let it be known? Would you come as we stand and sing?